You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Russians cheer an unlikely victory over Spain in the World Cup, but do they yet have reason to celebrate a no less improbable soft power triumph? My guests Daniela Peled and James Rogers will be here to discuss that and the day's other top stories, including Mexico's new president, for whom today's result against Brazil is hopefully not an omen, Angela Merkel's calling of the bluff of her turbulent interior minister, and is there any way Denmark's new policy for integrating immigrants is less sinister than it sounds. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor at the Institute of War and Peace Reporting, and James Rogers, Head of International Journalism Studies at City University London. Welcome both. And we start in Mexico, where voters have provided some relief to the world's beleaguered opinion pollsters by electing the president that everyone expected them to. He is André Manuel López Obrador, former mayor of Mexico City and veteran left-winger who has taken several previous pops at the top job. He has promised profound change, although people in his situation always do, and to tackle corruption, although ditto. However, he did promise that he was not looking to construct a dictatorship either open or hidden, which is traditionally what one says when one is. Um, Daniela, he won by absolute miles, uh, in fairness to him, 53.8% as against 28, 23.8% for his nearest rival. Why? Well, I think you have to look at it in context of the situation Mexico is in right now in terms of the supposed war on drugs, which is basically, it seems to be an all-out war, massive corruption, uh, their neighbour to the north, uh, Mr. Trump not being particularly uh, pleasant towards them. Sorry, my my British understatement just got (laughs) a bit out of control. But in terms of the violence, I mean, it's affecting every aspect of life. I think in the run-up to the elections, around 130 people involved in elections were killed. Uh, it was it was something of that sort. Yeah, including forty odd uh, candidates. I mean, that's just an astonishing uh, rate of attrition. So he represents something very, very different. Uh, as you said, he promises to fight against corruption and the rule of the elite and so on. Uh, it all sounds a bit familiar, um, and I think there's something very um, beguiling about the narrative of this sort of uh, silver-haired nicely spoken guy, former mayor, who keeps on having a go at the presidency and has finally won, is very popular and everyone is very happy. But that is, it's still a victory for populism, even if left-wing populism, and I think right now left-wing populism, like right-wing populism, uh, is it's just too, it makes me feel very, very nervous. James, do we have any idea what he means by profound change? Because as the world has learnt these last few years, that's not always a good thing in and of itself. 
No, it's not. I mean, as, as Daniel has been outlining, he's obviously he's, he's promised to take on the wealthy elites. That's a fair. That's something which is going to have resonance all around the world in a world where people increasingly believe that the very wealthy aren't paying their way or, or doing their fair share. Um, and I think too, you know, Mexico's in the in the international spotlight as never before, not least because of its relationship with its neighbour to the north, um, and which uh, Mr. Trump obviously made a big point during his campaign and since about the kind of relationship. Uh, he proposes to have with Mexico. This Mr. Trump, of course, who, who we were told with, after his meeting with uh, European leaders, the concerns expressed there that uh, he's sort of tearing up the rules of the West that they've been. So I think the relationship between the United States and Mexico, uh, as it develops with a with a with a president of Mexico who's very much opposed to much of what Mr. Trump stands for, is going to be very interesting in terms of America's role in the role in the world as well. We'll talk more about um, President Elect Obrador and President Trump shortly. But Daniela, you, you characterise him as a populist, which I, I think is fairly reasonable. Um, and he's made a few populist variety promises of such things as halving his own salary, opening up the presidential palace to the public, uh, and so forth. I think he's going to turn his garden into a public park that, well. that was the idea yeah. yes do, do, do these kind of things do, do they really mean anything or are or are they just the kind of gestures that populists make donald trump i think i'm right in saying is is only taking a a one dollar a year salary as president of the united states which which seems like a fairly poor bargain really <laughs> well, i think the, i think these gestures can have quite an impact uh as long as they're not taken in isolation you see that the the, the 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 moves towards a humbler and more modest life that the the new pope took i think was quite moved quite a lot of people but it was also combined in uh his attitudes um his speech and the discourse and his moves in kinds of directions so i think it can be a good move i think uh, action on corruption would be much more um striking and I think that would really mark him out from from his predecessor. I mean, what marks him out now is his very combative attitude towards uh, Donald Trump, which I can imagine fills a lot of Mexicans with a sense of national pride. Rather than I you remember his uh, the incumbent sitting there rather uncomfortably as as Donald Trump railed against. Uh, about the wall uh, and so on and so forth. Well, all of the candidates in this election campaign did beat up on Donald Trump fairly relentlessly. I think all of them probably realising they weren't going to lose votes uh, in doing that. But Donald Trump has issued, or at least whoever was operating his Twitter feed at that moment, has issued pro forma congratulations to President-elect Obrador. But uh, James, is he now in the weird position where he is going to be obliged to have some sort of relationship with President Trump. He can't spend uh, the entirety of either his term or Trump's term, whichever lasts longest, uh, just continually insulting him. No, exactly. That's very hard to see. I mean, I think, you know, looking at the state of Mexico, as we've been discussing, um, I mean, one thing that I do get involved in, and, and Daniela's organisation does too, is looking at the situation for journalists around the world and I, uh, I'm having been you know award ceremonies where Mexican journalists have been on I'm always struck by the massive danger that they face reporting for example the drugs war there so you can see why anybody promising to do something about that uh, is likely to succeed he has the chance of you know coming in and, 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 uh, and starting afresh however very difficult that's going to be people are much more likely to try somebody new than to stick with what they've known thus far but it, clearly he is going to have to have some kind of relationship with the United States, albeit one imagines at times at least an extremely fraught one. Uh, Daniela, just just finally on this, I mean, obviously you can only wish him well uh, and so forth, but... uh 
it, how big a concern is what might be thought of as a, a Hugo Chavez issue uh, and, and what might be the first intimations of it? Well, I think perception is key in this, really, and markets are extremely sensitive and, uh, and jumpy. And I think the fact that he is perceived as a Chavez-style uh, in his uh, approach to the economy is already potentially worrying uh, investors. Um, I mean, a lot of this is out of his uh, out of his remit. To be fair, I mean, President Trump's approach to NAFTA, for instance. But I think uh, the I think that's has weighed against him uh, in a, in previous bids to to be the president. Uh, I don't think the, um, those kind of sweeping economic reforms will necessarily be that popular with the uh, mainstream in Mexico. Okay, well, let's look now at Germany, where, as we go to air, Chancellor Angela Merkel is reported to be in talks with her restive interior minister, Horst Seehofer. Reports over the weekend suggested that Seehofer had resigned or would resign or was threatening to resign in a row over migration policy. Any such flouts on Seehofer's part might potentially threaten the role of his CSU party in the governing coalition with Merkel's CDU. And I hope I've got those acronyms the right way round. However, Merkel did not get where she is and has remained for some considerable time without being good at politics. James, has Horst Seehofer overplayed his hand here? Well, I think that's what we're going to find out, but he may also feel he had little chance but to take this sort of risk because um, obviously the uh, alternative for Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, as they call themselves, the uh, the very right-wing anti-immigrant um, party there have made considerable strides, which is exactly what's putting pressure on the centre-right. I mean, it's been decades that these have been working together and you know every German election you can think of you know the Christian Democrats with their Christian Social Union partners in Bavaria it was just it was a given of German politics but such at the time that that relationship has been put under pressure and perhaps he felt he had to uh, to take this to take this what may be seen as a gamble in some quarters but I think you're right I mean I think uh, Mrs Merkel is rather good at negotiating her way around this so we'll see if indeed he has overplayed his hand. Uh, the, the flap here Daniela is of course a, a different approach approach to uh, migration policy. Uh, Seehofer f- f- prefers the idea of a harder line than the one that Merkel has taken. Um, what is stopping Merkel from just sacking him, however? Well, she needs to she needs to keep her coalition together. And I think what's at play here is just power politics and the fact that she has been uh, she has been Chancellor for, what, 14 years? 13, 14 years? I mean, that's a long time. It's a very long time. It's a long time. And I can't think of previous examples of in democracies of people who've remained at the top for so long without some serious challenges and without their authority uh, eventually um, diminishing. I mean, she's looked vulnerable for a while now. And I think I agree that p- predictions of her demise are... Uh, a little bit uh, premature, but she has been vulnerable for a while. The the, um, the political centre has shifted so far to the right that uh, other parties are, are struggling to keep up. But she's always been very much of the following her own line and sticking to it. I think she can. I mean, I think she can style this one out. <laughs> uh, James, if you if you read coverage of uh, this contretemps in in other European media, that that is non-German media, that there is an awful lot of people buying enthusiastically into this Germany political chaos narrative. Is is there an element of of 
wishful thinking about that? Sort of everybody else just wanting to reduce Germany to their own wretched level. Germany, which is generally a country that's been quite well run in the last, uh, last and, couple and, and, of decades. Uh, well, Unlike uh, some uh, countries uh, I could mention, not some parliaments I could mention, not so very far from well, where indeed, we're sitting and, at the and, moment. And but. As, as far as it's possible to tell, Germany is not and is, and is in no danger of becoming a sort of irradiated hellscape in which the living envy the dead. I think it, it is still quite a you know well-run, orderly, functional society. It is. I just think there's a lot at stake here, not just within the German political system, but obviously within the wider European one, because obviously this seems to have largely been sparked, uh, and Mrs Merkel's problems, her opponents will trace back to her decision to admit large numbers of refugees a couple of years ago during the, the, the peak of the migrant crisis. This, um, her critics would argue, is what has given her critics to the right ammunition and what has put, um, has caused concern, caused worries amongst her, her centre-right allies. So, um, And obviously she's been at the centre too, just last week, of discussing what Europe's entire future policy on migration could be alongside new right-wing governments in Italy. Um, so I think there's a lot more at stake, which is, I think, why people are talking in terms of crisis. But uh, certainly it doesn't look like the sort of country that's about to, to fall apart and to hyperinflation or anything like that, as, you know, as, as other places might do when there was a real political crisis. <laughs> I mean, Daniela, on the subject of migration, there is a new deal among the European Union, apparently Currently, it feels like roughly the 600th new deal on migration there has been in the last year alone. Uh, do we have any faith whatsoever that this one is going to work or stick or function or that we're not going to be having another emergency summit and this same conversation all over again about another month from now? Well, I'm sure there will be an emergency summit. I don't know if it will be in a month or so. But the fundamental problem is... Uh, that Europe has to deal with is where are migrants, refugees, incomers, where are they going to end up? And is it the responsibility of the first country they come to where they claim asylum and so on and so forth? Uh, and, and Merkel is very keen on keeping the principle of fluid movement within Europe. And um, that's been very much the, the bedrock of, of her of her perception of it. So the idea that that will change in a new migrant, uh, a new migrant agreement, I think, is anathema to her. But really, it can't. That we we have not uh, had the sensible discussion about migration that the politicians keep on promising us, and it seems it's impossible, not least with the, all the, the populist right wing governments as well. If we were looking for a fair and equal solution to sharing the burden amongst European states, that would be a different matter. But it's so fraught with internal political tensions. That's not what's really being discussed right now. And it's also about the whole idea of Europe as well. Uh, James, how much support is Merkel able to bank on from her EU partners at this point? By which I guess I'm asking that whether or not they may publicly agree or disagree with her about migration and other issues, would they miss her if she went? I think they would definitely miss her if she went at the moment, yeah. I mean, if you think about the leaders of Europe, you know, Monsieur Macron is, is uh, full of promise, apparently, for his supporters, but he's relatively new on the stage, uh, and he's not. he does not have um, the experience that... Uh, Mrs. Merkel has at a time when the European Union is dealing with the imminent departure of the UK and, lo and, and the migration crisis and financial problems elsewhere too. So I think they would miss her a lot. And I think um, it, and migration is going to be, I mean, one imagines she may stay in office for some time to come. She may not survive this. Whenever her political obituary comes to be written, that policy about admitting refugees will be 
in the first paragraph because that is going to be a defining moment of her entire time at the top of German politics. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and James Rogers. Coming up next, Denmark also has ideas about immigration and they're pretty strange. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Daniela Pellet and James Rogers. And let's look now at Denmark, a country which has long prided itself and traded heavily upon an image as a nation governed by easygoing, pragmatic good sense. It is judging by new rules shortly to be imposed upon residents of 25 designated urban enclaves, a reputation in which Denmark may be losing interest. Among the regulations for people living in what appear to have been actually officially classified as ghettos is that children be separated from their mostly immigrant families for 25 hours a week, and that punishments for some crimes be extended if committed in the designated areas. James, uh, you have lived in Denmark. Um, Is there any way at all that this isn't all as weird as it sounds? I think it's a it's a certain response to a certain kind of social problem. I mean, I think, you know, we outside Scandinavia have this idea that the society is very easygoing, very tolerant, and that is true. But at the same time, it is also conformist in a certain way. And the whole um, high-tax, high-spend, uh, generous welfare system is predicated on the fact that everybody pays in and everybody sticks to the rules. And that's why... Um, Denmark has found it quite difficult to absorb um, culturally some of the immigrants in recent years and has not necessarily done a particularly good job of it. Um, If we think too, we were just talking about the migration crisis, you'll remember a couple of years ago Denmark uh, introduced that astonishing law whereby anybody arriving in the country with more than €2,000 worth of uh, of goods, including personal jewellery, was expected to sell it or to hand it over or would not receive as much help um, if they did. So this is a certain kind of Response, but it's also um, it's also one I think that uh, is not necessarily going to go well because, we, as we can see, it's been heavily criticised already. Uh, Daniela, the the optics around this plan, the terminology, and also the, the the scheme stroke policy that James just mentioned there are so uh, I don't even know what the word is tinnied. Um, can optics be tinnied? No, tinnied <laughs> is almost certainly wrong. You know what I'm saying. That they're, they're so weird and they're so off that you do have to wonder if there's any way this isn't deliberate. Are they just basically trying to say without actually trying to say that, sorry, they're trying to say without actually saying that we would really just prefer it if nobody came here at all? Uh, I'm sure they're saying that as well. I mean, they're speaking very directly to a very commonly held view, I think, amongst uh, across Europe, including in uh, in the United Kingdom, of otherwise fair-minded people who say, well, we don't mind them 
a sort of amorphous them coming over here, but they don't want to integrate. They want to ban Christmas and they want to keep their own habits and their own clothes and their own etc. 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 So they on one hand saying we've got nothing against them, them, the amorphous them, but you know, they're just not doing their best to fit in. And they don't really see that, if you can see the tinnedness of this, <laughs> the, the, the two aspects, the idea that you're going to be welcoming to people in need, but actually not very welcoming at all. People find that quite easy to hold those those views at once. I mean, on the face of it, the idea that young children should go to daycare, early years education is very important. It can make a massive difference uh, into a child's life. The point is that this is mandatory. And that's what's scary. The idea if you have these services available for refugees or for migrants, then the process of integration is there. But to do it forcefully, I mean, I think we have to be, number one, very suspicious of any country's intentions that bans the burqa or minarets. I mean, Denmark has banned the face veil, which is a worrying sign. It must affect about half, two dozen people there. But it, they're sending that signal and that signal, it's a popular signal and... It's very clear as well. Mm. I think just to add a little bit of context, and the, the one-year-old's going to daycare, that's actually quite standard in Denmark. Indeed. Women get a year's full, fully paid maternity leave, 12 months, but thereafter the children expect to go into the care system. That's part of the society, part of the education system. It's part of the socialisation and, and being together that's supposed to start that early on. I think you know where, where families choose not to do that, they're seen as a little unconventional, to put it mildly. Is there an argument, Daniela, that a, a small country in particular, such as Denmark, is entitled to be uh, more rigorous in what it asks of immigrants well but what, what rigor how rigorous can you be i mean ultimately in any far-minded democracy people have equal rights before the law you have to treat all groups of people the same uh, and that's where this falls down there are plenty of measures you can put in place to try and help people integrate but it has to be a two-way process as well and there has to be a recognition that our world is changing the Syrian uh, war, as a single example, has had a massive effect on uh, the movement of people around the world and certainly in Europe. And there are very many people who want to integrate. Do, what does integration mean? I mean, I grew up in, in London, not speaking English at home, not celebrating Christmas. And I feel pretty well integrated myself. No one really would complain about my lack of integration. So I think there's, I think there's an element of Islamophobia here and I think there's an element of people not really quite understanding what it is that they are doing, but they just know that they're not fitting in. James, are we, well, are we, not not so much are we likely to see, are we in fact seeing uh, a race to the bottom by European countries all trying to outdo each other in how unwelcoming they can be to new arrivals? Yeah, and I think Denmark is uh, is putting itself ahead, if you can put yourself in the head with a race to the bottom. I mean, the jewellery law, I thought, was, was, is deep, was deeply disturbing. If you imagine that people have left home with what little they've been able to grab, you know, having €2,000 worth of jewellery does not make you colossally wealthy frankly especially uh, may, not in Denmark indeed and you may things you know personal keepsakes which may have a lot of sentimental value I think the language here is very very worrying that you know it's actually being officially described as ghetto and it is a consequence of the fact that the center of Danish politics has shifted significantly to the right in recent years um, the Danish People's Party which is a Eurosceptic um, anti-immigrant party uh, consistently is getting the highest share of the vote but is refusing to go into government so for rather cleverly from a political point of view enjoys the luxury of uh, eternal opposition and in consequence the main parties that the Liberal Party and the Social Democrats have put their own agendas to the right in order to try to hoover up some of those votes.
Okay, well, let's look finally uh, at the World Cup, in which people are continuing to take an interest despite the elimination of Australia. Also, it says here Spain, Argentina, Germany, Mexico, Portugal, and some other lesser footballing powers have been eliminated, and host nation Russia are still in it. Their previously unfancied team, distinguished by their extraordinarily advanced aerobic capacities and generally remarkable stamina. Um, I, I do want to ask you both, first of all, uh, how excited you are for tomorrow night's game between um who is it england are playing columbia it is columbia uh james uh, obviously our, our listeners cannot see this but has painted his face in the in the st george's uh, cross uh, uh, da- uh, daniela always has so that it, it's it, it, it it's hard to tell but uh are you, daniela are you, are you looking forward to it i think my facial expression <laughs> says it all again our listeners are missing your expression <laughs> of serene indifference uh to all things World Cup related. Um, I will uh, disclose at this point that despite my accent, I am, uh, and despite my being a very big football fan, I am also half Scottish, so I don't really care too much about the English national team. So, so, I do it, follow so you, a club team very closely, but I... Uh, if, if you're half Scottish, does that just mean you want England to draw every game? Well, that, that's, if, I were, if I were fully <laughs> Scottish, I'd obviously uh, be looking forward to their defeat. I mean, one, you may have seen the media reports about um, uh, in Glasgow, the great cheers that went up uh, when Panama managed a single goal against England in their six-one defeat. So, I um, I'm I'm pretty uh, pr- pretty relaxed about the whole thing. I will watch the game because I'm interested in football, but I don't have the sort of emotional attachment that uh, you know probably goes with supporting a footballing powerhouse like Australia, Andrew. Uh, indeed, <laughs> our, our 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 day will come, which is to say, our day would have come in 2006 had we not been cruelly cruelly robbed by that diving Italian. Not that we are as people bitter. Um, Daniela, is is this striking you? However as a general spectacle, uh, an unalloyed, as an unalloyed soft power triumph for Russia. Is it making you think better of Vladimir Putin than you did three weeks ago? Yes, it is a, an unalloyed soft power uh, triumph. No, it isn't making me feel uh, uh, more generous towards Vladimir Putin. And as somebody who's completely uninterest, uninterested in football, let alone football on... Is this an international level? I suppose it is. It's a, there's a clue in the name World yes, Cup. Right, yes, right, fine. Whatever. I think I'm, <laughs> I, I'm having a much more, uh, I would say, a much more clear-eyed uh, view of this whole affairs, which is the whole the whole thing is a massive win for Russia at a time when Russia is committing atrocities in Syria, basically walked into Ukraine, no one minds about that, is chumming up with uh, the current uh, resident in, in the White House. I could go on... Um, and people are saying, well, you know, it's sport, isn't it? It's sport. It's different. It's different if it's sport. It's really not. It's really not. I think it's just this is normalised uh, Russia's role as an international player, as a fam- member of the family of nations. And as much as Britain says, well, we've sent the minimal delegation of dignitaries and really we're not honouring them as the, the hosts. I think we're all complicit in it. And I think that's very, very bar humbug of me. Uh, it is, but not 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 unreasonably. Uh, James, in in terms of the way Russia have organised this, there there was a lot of concern. And again, Russia is another country in which you have lived. But there was a lot of concern before the the tournament about uh, Russia's infamous, justly infamous football hooligans, of mm. whom we have not heard a squeak. Uh, would I be right in assuming? Do you think that sometime before the World Cup, they were sat down in darkened rooms, the leaders of the hooligan firms, with serious people, uh, and reminded in no uncertain terms of how long and 
cold winter in Siberia can be. It very much looks that way. And I, I think that's perfectly plausible. That's exactly what's happened. Um, I mean, I will say that this is something that's been a very, very long time in the planning. Russia was awarded the World Cup in 2010. They were told then they would host the tournament at the, at the this en- year. At the end of a bidding process uh, famous for its transparency, openness and in, Indeed, and, and, and which may integrity. not bear up to very close scrutiny. But a, a couple of years before that, and I, it seems now with hindsight, almost certainly as a trial run for, for hosting a big international football tournament, they hosted the, uh, the final of the European Champions League, which was for the first and so far the only time between two big English teams, um, Chelsea and Manchester United. Uh, and I remember going to that to cover that as a correspondent, and I was astonished the way that everything was organised. Firstly, they waived visas, which was something I never thought I would see in Russia, but they were trying it out. It's worked very well this time too. It's not that easy to get a visa for Russia. It really isn't. And secondly, um, the, the, the riot police in Russia, who um, are no, more known for their rigorous policing tactics than their levels of customer service, if I can put it that way. Rigorous is an adjective, yes. Um, were bending over backwards to be polite to people they would normally have either dismissed or, or told to get lost. And they, they too had obviously been told nobody is, you know, everyone has to be on their absolutely best behaviour. And it was, it was clear this was a sort of trial run. Um, and that approach seems to have served them very well. You know, a lot of people who thought that, you know, they would, they um, had these ideas about how awful it was going to be in Russia didn't realise, A, that it's warm in Russia in the summer, which is quite a sort of well-kept secret for those of us who come back to Western Europe <laughs> and moan about living through the winters there. But it has gone off very well and there hasn't been any fighting. And I think that's quite probably that they've had the frightness put on them. Well, j- just finally then, uh, Daniele, do- does your ironclad indifference crack at all if-, if England do put a run together? If they make it as far as the semi-finals, would you end up uh, sitting on top of a lion in Trafalgar Square wearing a Union Jack Bowler hat? Listeners cannot see the look of disgust <laughs> that has replaced the look of apathy on my face. No, they really can't. James, do, do, do you tilt even slightly towards England if they put a run together? I'll, I'll be happy to see some good football. I'm, I'm, my, my, well, we'll see. How. I, I'm also, I also remain very sceptical. I think the, the reality is just taking a little longer to dawn than it has done in previous tournaments. Although, as you said in your introduction, a lot of strongest teams are out, so it's, uh, there are the opportunities there. As we go to air and as we finish this programme, my two quid on Belgium still looking pretty good. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellet and James Rogers, thanks both very much for joining us at Midori House, which was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lamici Okamoto, Paula Schulze, and our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. Emma Nelson has more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. For now, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thanks for listening. 